0: When I was growing up, my father had a phrase that I used to say to me all the time. Son, that's just life. If I ever complained about the things going on around me, that's what he would say. That's just life. Welcome to the real world. Looking back, I realise just how right he was. The older I get, the more I realise that life is full of hard things. There are all sorts of difficult things that come our way in life that we have to navigate and deal with and that is as true for Christians as it is for anyone else. As we grow in our faith we quickly realise that being a Christian doesn't exempt us from the trials and difficulties of life. As time goes on things come along that test our faith. Life throws up all sorts of hard situations. Difficult relationships, poor health, unemployment, losing loved ones, friends and family who don't believe in Jesus, The list goes on and on. And the coronavirus has brought along its own trials that we've been experiencing in recent days. Not being able to meet as a church, prolonged periods of loneliness and isolation, financial insecurity. Some have been really ill with the virus. Some have even lost their lives because of the virus. But as true as what my father said was, that's just life was never really a very satisfactory answer for why life is hard. Especially as a Christian, if God loves me, then why does he allow these things to happen to me? That's the first question we ask in the face of trials, isn't it? Why do we experience so many difficulties and struggles in life? As Christians, what are we to make of all the trials and difficulties that life serves up? Surely there must be a better answer than that's just life. And the second question that soon comes after why is how. When trials come along, how do we deal with them? How am I going to get through this? Surely Christianity offers more than just being told to grin and bear it. What does the Bible say we are supposed to do in trials? Well, one place where we can find the Bible's answers to those questions is in James chapter 1. James was the half-brother of Jesus and the leader of the church in Jerusalem and as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit he wrote this letter to Christians who had been scattered out of Jerusalem because of persecution. It's not immediately clear why he's writing to them but as we read through the book we start to get a picture for what's going on with these Christians. In the background they seem to be experiencing trials and difficulties in the form of Pressure coming from outside the church and ongoing financial insecurity. But what takes centre stage in the book is the fact that there is in-house fighting and relational conflict among these Christians. And that's the main test of their faith that James is concerned about. The Christians in these churches are not behaving well to one another. They aren't loving each other as they should. And so this letter really serves as a loving rebuke. James wants his readers to be wise. He wants to teach them to live wisely alongside one another in the midst of these ongoing trials. So with that in mind, the start of the book seems like a really strange way to start a rebuke, doesn't it? It seems strange that James would start by addressing trials instead of getting stuck into how they have been behaving. But what James is doing is addressing the deeper problem that is going on. He wants to deal with how they are thinking. He wants to arm them with a mindset that will help them to navigate all these different trials, both inside and outside the church. Because these trials are exposing a deeper problem, the problem of double-mindedness. So in these first 12 verses of James chapter 1, James starts off by challenging their thinking. It's from their thinking that their behaviour stems from. And so As we come to this passage, we can expect that James is going to teach us how to think about trials and how to live wisely through trials. And as he does that, I think there are three things we can observe that James is teaching us about walking through trials as a Christian. The first thing James wants to teach us is that there's a way to think about trials that brings joy. There's a way to think about trials that brings joy. Look with me to verse two. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. James is saying that there is a perspective that all Christians need to adopt in trials. There is a way of thinking that we need to have when we face suffering and hardship in our lives. And it's absolutely essential because Christians can be sure that they will face trials. James doesn't say if. He says when, whenever you face trials. Being a Christian doesn't mean your life is going to be sunshine and rainbows. Being a Christian doesn't exempt you from facing the suffering and the trials that are part and parcel of living in a fallen world. We should expect trials to come our way. And trials will come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. James also says whenever you face trials of many kinds. No matter what your trial might be, this way of thinking is for you. From the hardest trials we could ever face in life right down to the seemingly insignificant things we face on a daily basis. Either way James tells us to adopt a particular mindset. And what is that way of thinking we need to adopt? Well when we face trials James says we are to consider it pure joy. Now I don't know about you I don't really consider it normal for a person to react to trials with joy. If you were playing Family Fortune and the question asked was name something you associate with trials or suffering joy would be nowhere near the top answers. Life has an ability to throw really hard situations and overwhelming difficulties at us and much more than, than, and more often than not the hardest trials become all-consuming. When something hard comes along it can be incredibly hard to see past the situation you're in and joy is the last feeling we would expect to have. So how can the bible make this claim? How on earth can we think about trials in such a way that brings joy? Well James isn't saying that trials aren't really difficult or that we have to just pretend everything is fine. He's not saying that suffering is really easy and that we should be happy all the time but look at what he is saying. James Gives us two things to focus our minds on that bring joy in the midst of a trial. Firstly, notice that trials bring maturity and completeness. Look at verse 3 again. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Trials train us to persevere. God allows situations to come along in our lives where it's not easy to keep going, so that when we do keep going, we grow in our faith. I had a friend who signed up for the Belfast Marathon and somehow within a few weeks he forgot that he had signed up. So for the few months leading up to the marathon he did no training whatsoever. The night before the marathon he suddenly remembered and decided he was going to run anyway. Needless to say he didn't get very far, he hadn't developed any perseverance, his leg muscles were never going to last and by the 10th mile they were like jelly. He wasn't ready to run a marathon because he had done no endurance training. And in the same way, faith is meant to be tested. It's like a muscle. It grows as it is exercised and used. To get stronger, muscles need to come up against some resistance in order to develop and withstand more and more in the future. Our faith muscles need to be stretched in order to grow. We need the resistance of trials so that we grow spiritually and finish strong. Now that doesn't mean we should go looking for trials. James is just telling us what they're designed for. They develop perseverance in us. But trials don't produce perseverance for its own sake. Perseverance has an amazing result. Look at verse 4. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Trials help us to become mature and complete not lacking in anything. Trials are used by God to make us into the people we were meant to be. They enable us to become more and more like Christ. If our goal in life is to become more like Christ then we can take joy in trials because they keep us moving towards that goal. You know when we're going through trials it's easy for our goal, for our desired outcome to be that our circumstances get sorted out and everything just goes back to the way we want things to be. But if that's the case then we're only going to end up being constantly frustrated and disappointed. Because often in life things won't get sorted out the way you want them to and sometimes things won't get sorted out at all. And even if things do happen the way you want, before long something else will come up. That's the reality of life in a broken and fallen world. But if your ultimate goal is not to fix your circumstances, but to grow in Christ likeness, then no matter what our circumstances are, we can rejoice because we are achieving our goal of becoming like him. So that's the first thing James calls us to focus on. The second thing James tells us to think about in the midst of tr- life's trials is that trials bring future glory. This section on trials is bookended by verse 12. And look at, it, at what it says with me. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. We can consider trials joy because those who endure to the end will receive the crown of life just like God has promised. Now whenever we hear the word crown we automatically picture something like the crown jewels don't we? A crown that a king or a queen would wear. But when the original readers of this letter heard the crown of life they would have immediately thought about the wreath that would be placed on the head of an athlete when they had won the race. This is a picture of someone receiving a reward for getting to the end of a race. So James is saying that we can consider trials joy because there is something wonderful waiting for us at the end of our trials. There is something wonderful at the end of the marathon. When we run the race marked out for us running through trials that come along the way and get to the end we will receive an incredible reward. We will receive the reward that Jesus secured for us on the cross. Even though the things we go through in this life aren't good in and of themselves even though things happen to us that make us question what is God doing we know that we have a supremely good God. We have a God We came into this world to suffer in our place. Jesus Christ bore the punishment that we deserved on the cross and he has promised a wonderful, glorious future to those who trust in his death and resurrection. At the end of our trials, those who have put their trust in Christ are met with eternal life. Isn't it an incredible thought that God is able to use the worst things that happen to us for our ultimate good, There will be a day when we look back on the hardest times in our lives and we will see how God used them to bring us to maturity and completeness. That he used them to keep us going on the way to our ultimate reward. Now, you might be thinking, okay James, that sounds great. But reality doesn't look like that. God can't honestly expect me to think like this when I'm going through something awful. I'm a weak human being and I'm just not there yet. And there are so many things in life that can hit us like a ton of bricks. Does the Bible actually expect us to have joy in the middle of our suffering and our trials? Well, this certainly isn't a natural way to think about trials and suffering, is it? This is a bit of a paradox, it's a mystery. We can't fully understand how a believer can find joy in things that are so hard and difficult to experience. Joy and suffering just aren't things that go together. To think this way when we are going through trials, we need God's supernatural help. We need wisdom to see our trials in this way. Wisdom that only he can provide. And that leads us on to the second thing that James wants to teach us about living wisely in trials. There's a way to ask for wisdom that God answers. There's a way to ask for wisdom that God answers. Look with me to verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom... You should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. James doesn't expect his readers to have this all figured out. James isn't saying that when a trial comes along we have to prove ourselves and pass the test. We don't have to hold it together so that we can show God how good a Christian we are. And it would be absolutely wrong to think that in a, a trial our training is supposed to kick in and we're supposed to be able to handle trials on our own. We aren't expected to know what to do. God's not going to get angry with us if we can't see the good in what is happening to us just yet. We are supposed to look to God for help. When the hard times come along, the Bible is telling us here to pray and ask God for wisdom. To ask God to help us have this eternal mindset. This wisdom is not automatic. It's it's not something we develop in ourselves. It's something we have to ask for. But James is very clear that there is a right way and a wrong way to ask for this wisdom. So let's look at each of the prayers that James describes. Firstly, notice the prayer for help that God answers. Look with me to the start of verse 6. James says, When you ask, you must believe and not doubt. We are to believe what James has just said about God in verse 5 that he will generously provide wisdom to all those who ask for it without finding fault. James is reminding us of what we already know about God. We already discovered God's generosity when we believed in the gospel. We realised how generous God is when we learned that he gave us no less than his one and only son. And because we know that Jesus came into this world to die for sinners, we know that God gives without finding fault while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He has already lavished us with his grace. We already know we have been given what we don't deserve. All the faults that should have disqualified us from receiving forgiveness of sins and eternal life have been washed away because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And if God has already given the most valuable thing he has, then how much more is God willing and able to give us more grace? How much more is God willing to give us the wisdom we need to persevere in trials? As it says in Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? God doesn't stop being generous to his children when we turn to Christ. He keeps on giving to those who ask. So when we find ourselves in trials, and we just want things to return to normal, God says, Draw near to me. Ask me to give you wisdom to understand why this is happening. Ask me to give you an eternal perspective, and I promise I will give it to you and be right there with you. The prayer for help that God answers is that we ask God for wisdom and trust Him to give it to us because we know that He is a generous and gracious God. But look also to the second prayer that James describes. The prayer for our will that God won't answer. Look at verse 6-8 again. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Whenever we ask God for help, we are to do so without doubting. Now, that could quite easily derail us. Who hasn't had doubts before in their Christian walk? Does this mean that if we've we've ever had any doubts that we can't have any confidence that God will help us when we come to him for wisdom? Well, no, it doesn't mean that. James is using the word doubt in a very particular way here. He isn't saying that if we have ever questioned our faith or grappled with something in the Bible that we are disqualified from receiving wisdom. We can see what he means by doubting from what he says immediately after. James is talking about people who are double-minded, people who have a foot in both camps. You've got one foot in the kingdom of God and the other foot in the world. Double-minded people are those who haven't fully submitted to God's will. There is still a battle of the will going on in their heart. There's a tug of war going on uh, between what God says in the Bible and what the world says. You know, they ask God for help. But they also have their own ideas about how things should work out. They aren't totally convinced yet that God's way will always end up being the best way no matter how hard the situation is right now. And according to James the result of their double-mindedness is that they won't receive anything from the Lord and not only that they will be unstable in all that they do. I once tried to go paddleboarding. I stood on the jetty with the board in the water But as I put one foot on the board, the whole thing started to drift off and I started doing the splits in midair between the jetty and the paddleboard. And before I knew it, I completely plummeted into the water and it was so embarrassing. James says, that's what the double-minded person is like. If we ask for God's wisdom, but we're still holding on to what we want to happen, we put ourselves in a precarious position. We can't expect that God will give us wisdom. So the challenge here is not that we make sure we don't have any questions or things we struggle to understand. But the challenge is to make sure we want the help that God offers. Are we coming to God and really asking for our will to be done? Or are we praying your will be done as Jesus taught us to pray? Are we asking that God would just click his fingers and put our circumstances back to the way we want them? Or are we asking for His will to be done in our situation, even if that means it doesn't go away? James is saying there's no point asking for God's help if we aren't willing to submit to His will. And this is something that is really important to remember when something hard is going on in our lives. When we are faced with something difficult, it's easy to want our will to be done in the situation. It's so easy to pray and I'm a Christian, get me out of here prayer. What we should pray is that the Lord would give us wisdom to know his will and that his will would be done, because we know that God's way is the best way. Does that mean that once we've asked for God's help, we'll immediately feel wise? Well, no. It doesn't mean that God will give us a light bulb moment where we know exactly what to do. It's doesn't mean that we'll automatically be able to cope mentally with what's going on. But whether we perceive it or not, if we ask God in faith, we will receive wisdom. We will be kept from foolishly going after our own will. We will receive the grace we need to persevere and keep going, to keep an eternal mindset in the midst of our earthly troubles. Okay, so... There's a way to think about trials that brings joy, there's a way to ask for wisdom that God answers. The third thing that James wants to teach us about living wisely in the midst of trials is that there's a way to boast in poverty or in riches. There's a way to boast in poverty or in riches. Now at first glance talking about the rich and the poor seems a bit random. When James starts talking about the rich and the poor, he isn't changing topic. What he's doing is giving an example of a type of trial that will test our faith. Usually when we think about trials, we think of people we love passing away. We think of times where we've maybe struggled with our own health or when we've been badly mistreated by other people. But James brings up our financial circumstances first. And that's a surprising trial to go to first, isn't it? But I think he does that because a lot of people James was writing to were experiencing economic hardship. And it's certainly true, even to this day, that people feel the effects of their financial circumstances every day. We spend most of our adult lives working. We spend a lot of our time in our lives doing things that will determine what our financial outlook will be. If you're a student or a young person, you might not be working right now, but you will be making decisions and studying so that someday you can earn a living. You may even be about to graduate university and you're faced with that pressure to find a job as soon as possible. Or maybe you had a job lined up already but the coronavirus has thrown it right up in the air. Whether or not you are working right now, this is an area of your life where your faith will be tested no matter who you are. Because when it comes to our finances, it's very easy to be double-minded and have split loyalties. It's easy to have one foot on the paddleboard. It's easy to trust in financial security rather than on God alone. So what is the message James has for the poor and for the rich? Well, he says that whether you're rich or poor, you have a reason to boast. But this reason to boast is not in your financial position. It's in your spiritual position before God. Both the rich and the poor can boast in the gospel for different reasons. Firstly, notice that the poor can boast in their high position. Look at verse 9. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. Later on in the letter, we find out that some of the Christians James is writing to were being exploited by the rich. And the message that James has for them is that they're to take pride in their high position. That seems strange, doesn't it? How can the poor have a high position? Well, it's fair to say that humble circumstances can actually uh, encourage and lead people to trust in God. They don't have finances that they can rely on. Um, Financial security is a myth for them. They are much more likely to be aware that they need God. But what James is really driving at here is that as Christians, they have more than earthly wealth could ever give them. They have an incredible inheritance to look forward to. One day they will put on the crown of life. Though they might look weak in the eyes of the world, they might look like they have nothing going for them. In the eyes of God, because they are in Christ, they could not be regarded more highly. They are spiritually rich. One day they will share in the glory of Christ. Christians who are going through hard economic situations need to remember that spiritually they are total millionaires. The world tells us that we need to have a great job, a great house, we need a nice car, going to look a certain way and if you don't you're a failure but the gospel flips that on its head. In Christ even the poorest person can count themselves as rich because one day they will have it all. So because of the gospel the poor can boast in their spiritual riches but how does James suppose the rich are to boast in their position? Well the rich can boast in their humiliation. Look with me to verse uh, 10 and 11. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with, with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. James is saying that the only way the rich can take pride is in their low position, in their humiliation. Now, that's surprising, isn't it? Our society would normally put this the other way around. If anything it's the poor who are humiliated and the rich who are exalted. But the gospel contradicts the way the world views wealth. The world says that we should all aspire to to being rich but the Bible tells us that actually it's better to be poor. It's better to be poor because the rich face a different and perhaps more dangerous trial. They have their own blind spot. The rich are extremely tempted put their trust in their wealth. So spiritually speaking they are in a much more dangerous position than the poor. They are more susceptible to double mindedness. But again there's more to it than that. James is saying that no matter how much money you have and how impressive you look, the gospel humbles you. It humiliates your worldly achievements. The gospel makes all your riches worthless. For the rich to be saved they have to acknowledge that although they lack for nothing physically, spiritually they come to God empty-handed. They bring absolutely nothing to the table. They can only be saved because God has been generous and gracious to them. No amount of wealth could ever earn their salvation. They have to come to God and accept his gift. They are spiritually bankrupt and they need a bailout of grace. And in verse 10 and 11, James reminds him of how fleeting their wealth is. It's so easy to equate security with having a lot of money. It feels solid, it feels dependable, but it's deceptive. In reality, it can all be gone in the blink of an eye. James says that riches will pass away like a wildflower in the heat of the sun. Riches are like fireworks. They appear for a while and they look really impressive, but they fade away in a second. Don't put your trust in the wealth of the world. Don't think you're secure without Christ. That is the trap that the rich can fall into. We aren't to boast in what we have, we are to boast in Jesus Christ. We are to remember that without him we have absolutely nothing. The gospel is a great leveler. It brings down the rich and it lifts up the poor. So whether you are poor or rich there is a way you can boast and that is in Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. As we come to a close this evening, let's take some time to apply what this passage has to say to our lives. Maybe you are facing great difficulties in your life right now. You don't know why it's happening and it just seems like you're trying to survive every day. The message that God has for you in this passage is don't give up. Trust that God is good and that his will is perfect. Ask him to give you the wisdom and grace you need to keep that joyful, eternal, perspective throughout this difficulty and to help you persevere. Remember that although many of the trials we face are really difficult and painful, they are temporary. In the end they will pass away and we will receive the crown of life that is prepared for us in glory. Maybe this passage has caused you to wake up to double-mindedness in your life. You've realised that you are being pulled by that earthly wisdom that says live your best life now you do you my will be done brothers and sisters it is possible to look like a christian but not be living in the way that god wants you to do the bible calls us not to say you trust in christ and then put your trust in other things as well that's a really precarious position to be in let's stop putting our trust in financial security our reputations or relationships or whatever it might be and put our trust in God alone. Don't forget what God has promised us, that if you trust his will and submit to him, then one day you will be mature and complete and you'll receive a crown of life. You will share in the glory of Christ in the new creation. What is there on earth that comes anywhere close to that? Have you stopped believing that God can come through on that promise of future glory? Let's repent of our double-mindedness and ask God for his wisdom. Ask him to change our mindset and to help us trust in his will alone. Or perhaps the ongoing situation with the coronavirus has made you question what God is doing. Maybe you even feel guilty over some of the doubts and questions you've had. Maybe you're increasingly worried about the future. One of the hardest things about this situation is the uncertainty. What about my exams? Am I going to be able to get a job? What's going to happen with my job? Is my family going to get through this unscathed? And these days we need to remember that our God is working all things out for our ultimate good. We need to ask him for wisdom so that we trust in his will, even though we don't know what's happening. We need to keep focused on the future glory that lies in store for those who persevere and keep viewing the situation as bringing us to maturity and completeness as we become more like Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father we thank you that you have a purpose for our trials and our suffering that you use them to make us more like Christ that you use them to make us mature and complete and bring us to future glory with you. Father help us to ask for wisdom in our trials to see them with that eternal perspective and Father forgive us for our double-mindedness that We so often ask for our will to be done in a situation, and we pray that we would constantly fix our eyes on you, no matter what is going on in our circumstances. And we pray all these things in your holy and precious name, Amen.